Hello and welcome to Bone Up, the podcast all about bones, how we make them, why we break them, and if we fully understand them. I'm David Armstrong. Hi, and I'm Richie Abel. And over this series, we're going to be exploring osteoporosis, bones, what we know and what we're yet to discover. And we hope you will join us on the journey. So for anyone keen to learn more about our infrastructure of calcified collagen, this is Bone Up. Happy New Year, David. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Richie, Happy New Year to you too. I'm not sure quite how long into the year we can say Happy New Year, but this is the first episode for 2024, so uh, I think we'll go with it. Definitely. I think we're fine. Uh, how have things been with you? You've been busy? Yes, very busy. I'm kicking off the year with a public patient involvement group meeting. It's a really wonderful part of my job. Here in the lab, we have a group of patients who come in and talk to us about their bone disease and try and tell us about what they think the research priorities should be, what kind of problems that they see in their day-to-day care, what part of the signs and symptoms of their disease that they most dislike. And we work together to try and come up with some research questions and hypotheses, which will hopefully drive our research to, to bring real patient benefit to try and drive the research that the patients want to be done. I think in the past, a lot of researchers were sitting in sort of the classic ivory towers where we'd be dreaming up problems in the world that might not be the most important problems and then trying to research solutions to those not so important problems. Yeah, I was going to say that, that isn't, that's a sort of a new thing almost, isn't it? Or something that's developed maybe in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, and I think it's been in response to the grant bodies. Grant bodies that fund research in the UK and abroad are are really trying hard to make sure that they do put their money into the best research. And so they've given us advice and guidance on how we can consult with patients and get their input. And actually, when you're applying for grants to do research, there's very often a box to fill out about how how patients took part and were involved in developing the research, how patients will be involved in interpreting the results of the research and then communicating it back to the world. And actually, that's a really, really important, uh, important role for the public and the patients in our research because if you don't get the messages right, even if you do really nice research and you come up with a nice solution to a problem, if you don't explain it well, if you don't excite people about it, then nobody's going to adopt. And then money was wasted, time was wasted, and it will all be a failure. I think in the spirit of openness to people who raise money and, and contribute money to charities, in the past, people maybe just had a more nebulous idea, well, the money goes to research and the public don't need to know any more about it. But Nowadays, people people expect to find out exactly where their money went and what it was used for, and to some extent how it might benefit them or their family or friends. And uh, 
yeah, it's, it's probably a it's probably a good thing. And I mean, certainly, even as a doctor, maybe to flip it to the clinical side. I mean, obviously, we are we're much more aware of involving people in decisions now. You know, the old sort of paternalistic doctor who wrote your prescription and handed it to you and you took the medicine because that's what the doctor said you know thankfully those days are gone you know we, we discuss with people i spend a lot of time explaining to people how their body works explaining why they've had the problem they have often a fracture and then discussing with them the, the solutions available often a drug solution but not always um and then finding out i suppose what their views are what their goals are um and coming to some sort of joint decision. Like clearly, as as the doctor, you still have many advantages in terms of knowledge of the science and ability to prescribe drugs. But I would hope, I would hope with every patient now, they do feel it's a it's a joint decision in terms of their management. Um, uh, and that's yeah, I suppose that's something has changed in in medicine as well. I think it's really expected now. I know here in the medical school at Imperial. There's a big emphasis on training students to have discussions with patients to help empower the patients to make decisions about their own care. And the clinicians can educate and inform and help the patient come to a decision. But the focus is on the patient and making sure that you do as well for them as you can. And that they get as the best outcomes for themselves. Yeah, I suppose two groups of patients that spring to mind in particular. One we have we have talked uh, on a number of occasions. We had a specific episode about Duchenne muscular dystrophy and about the the goals and values and beliefs of the young men who have that condition and who fracture um, as part of that condition. And how important it is to find out actually what the patient's belief and expectations are about the drug. On the other end of the scale, I suppose, is the older patient, and particularly the frail older patient, where I might know about the drug and how the drug works, but actually the patient's quality of life, the patient's goals, what the patient wants, what they see in the next two, three, five years for them is actually very important. Um, and again, I think that's that's something has probably changed that even to the, the very elderly patient, we get them much more involved in discussions now about about what really they want to see as a might come, particularly when you're talking about drugs, which maybe take two, three, even five years to have any significant, significant effect. And I suppose on that theme, then we have a specialist today who who fulfills a role which probably didn't exist when I was a junior doctor. Um, and, and she is an orthogeriatrician. I'm delighted to introduce our guest for today, Dr. Madhavi Vindlacharuvu. Madhavi was appointed the first consultant orthogeriatrician at Adderbrooks Hospital in Cambridge in 2006. Madhavi is the clinical lead for orthogeriatrics and has developed the services at Adam Brooks over the last 17 years. And Madhavi is also the clinical lead for the National Hip Fracture Database and the Fracture Liaison Services at the Trust. Very busy. Nice to see you again, Madhavi. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Madhavi. It's, uh, it's lovely to, to see you. You're a real friend of the podcast and, and you'll get your bone-up mug at last. 
Do we have any mugs Thanks. left, David? <laughs> we, we, I've kept one specially from Alfie, yes. Thank you ever so much. It really is a great pleasure to join you at long last, David and Richie. And uh, hopefully not too late to say a very happy new year and looking forward to a really successful uh, 2024 for everyone. Happy new year. So to begin with, I like to ask this question at the beginning, but it normally turns out to be the most difficult. I just want to know a little bit more about your speciality. What is an orthogeriatrician? So um, a really good question. Um, I, I'm refraining from saying an orthogeriatrician is the best job <laughs> is ultimately the answer. Um, we have specialised as the newest um, branch of geriatric medicine and our specialty very much involves continuity of care, which is why it's so, so important, particularly um, with fragility fracture patients undergoing surgery. At the very outset, we are understanding what the individual patient has to to live with on a day-to-day basis. So we're understanding their medical comorbidity, their psychological issues, their general health, their social situation. And effectively, to get somebody through an operation, we need to be able to optimise everything we can. We need to work with surgeons and anaesthetists. And then actually, the hard work begins after the operation because that's when we start rehabilitation, working with the nursing staff, the therapy teams. Often we'll have um, allied health professionals like dieticians, speech and language therapists, pharmacists. Um, and it's all about giving patients with fragility fractures the best opportunity to recover, to regain their independence. And whilst we're doing all of those things, we're thinking about falls risk factors and bone health. That's really interesting. I myself did not appreciate how complicated the care of osteoporosis patients was before and after the fracture and how many people are involved in the care of a patient. How do you coordinate all of those people? We've been ever so lucky that um, really throughout the career, my career as an orthogeriatrician, everything has has really developed. So at the very outset, we had the National Hip Fracture Database and we began with the Blue Book, which was really an inspirational strategy to say that you know the surgeons shouldn't just be fixing the broken bone it was about time we started thinking about falls and we thought about bone health so osteoporosis and um, from that blue book evolved effectively orthogeriatric care and in the United Kingdom we're incredibly lucky that it, it really has become the work of geriatricians but we know worldwide that not every country has got geriatric medicine is established as we have in the United Kingdom and so I think we're now with a global kind of aspect of bone health we're very much thinking about well who's who's interested who can appreciate the complexity um, of, of each individual patient and yet deliver all of these things so in some countries it's very much perioperative medicine some countries anaesthetists some countries it is um, physicians who've developed expertise so it doesn't have to be a geriatrician that delivers everything but ultimately somebody who can appreciate complexity beyond you know the realms of most individuals Certainly within my lifetime as a practicing doctor the difference orthogeriatrics has made has been enormous because uh, I'm sure you're not old enough to remember but you know it, it commonly when you were a very junior doctor you were called at night to the orthopedics ward to deal with crisis for people who had been operated on that day or were to be operated on on the next day and I think the introduction of consultant level 
specialists with insight and expertise into the care of these often frail elderly people. It's made an enormous difference to uh, well, to the life of the junior doctor, probably, but to the to the outcome for patients, more importantly. No, absolutely. And, and, and you know, again, palliative care is something, you know, we still recognise. We know that despite all of these interventions, despite having, um, you know, the best um, approach to care, we still know that a third of our patients are not alive a year from after they sustained the hip fracture. And that's why it's so important to include end of life care planning as something, you know, that we very much consider um and actually you're, you're absolutely right the you know the medical registrars no longer have to yo-yo between crashing heart failure and and, and acute kidney injury from dehydration and so um you know the nursing staff and 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 the, the ward teams very much appreciate having that level of of, of care and, and i think the bigger issue is going to be how do we make sure that all older people undergoing surgery have the same intervention? That That is another goal in terms of what geriatric medicine has to deliver. Uh, Mavavi, we all went to the Royal Osteoporosis Society at the end of last year, and you gave an incredibly well-received talk about frailty and osteoporosis. The room was absolutely packed. Could you explain to our listeners how frailty and osteoporosis are related? Yeah. Um, so the, the fundamental con- um, condition of, of frailty is, um, is distinct. It's, it, it isn't just that all older people are frail. And, and it's, it's very important that we do recognise, as with every group of the population, older people are heterogeneous. And so you've got you know, very fit, well 18, 90 year olds who who aren't frail. In fact, one of my patients this week is a um, is a gentleman in his nineties who's still playing tennis. And so, it, it isn't just the age, but but absolutely, as we get older, we are more likely to get frail. And and if we're thinking about what, what does frailty mean, frailty is a health condition where an individual loses that reserve and that. That reserve is our ability to to combat stresses, and those stresses can be anything from uh, a cold, flu, COVID, to a change in medication or a change in environment. Which is why many of us have seen you know dramatic increases in patients who who fall um, and then break a bone when they come to families for Christmas or Easter or when they go on holiday. It's a different environment. They don't know where the bathroom is. They're getting up to go to the toilet. That sort of thing. So. With frailty, it, it's very much about how we respond to those stresses, what we can do. And, and with good medical care, listening to what the patient wants, we can actually reverse the consequences of frailty. And if we bring that back to the, to the bone health side of things, we know that dealing with older people with fragility fractures, they've got the fragility of their own bones, so that comes down to the microarchitecture of the bone. So when you have a fall, you're much more likely to break the bone, but also the frailty of that patient, and that that is very much the complex bit. I mean, frailty is one of those things everyone sort of knows what it is, but at the same time, it can be hard to define. So I'll ask you to do that if you would. Can you give us? A definition of frailty or could you give us some idea of how different groups have tried to classify frailty so we can recognize it? 
No, absolutely. So, so, so you're absolutely right. When I first went to lectures about frailty, I was thinking, but that's what we as geriatricians do. We can see frailty from the end of the bed. Um, but I think a, a very nice and practical definition would be a process in which the body systems lose that inbuilt reserve, which increases their vulnerability to stresses. It is common. So we know that around 10% of people over the age of 65 have frailty. And as with many conditions, it increases. So as we get older, it's quoted that around 25 to 50% of people over the age of 85 will have frailty. When we talk about frailty in older people, we can either use a a more research-based approach, which is um, the model that Anna Fried and her colleagues use, and that that very much focuses on um, characteristics like unintentional weight loss, reduced muscle strength, reduced gait speed, self-reported exhaustion and low energy. But as clinicians day to day, that's that's quite difficult. And that's why many trusts now use um, the model proposed by Kenneth Rockwood um, from Canada. And that's what we call the cumulative deficit model. And you'll be familiar with clinical frailty scores that have evolved from this. And essentially, they have identified a whole range of deficits. And it goes from things from hearing impairment, visual impairment, dementia, depression, um, Parkinson's disease. And all of these things are added together to give you a frailty index. And once you recognize that frailty, it's what you do about it. And that's where the comprehensive geriatric assessment comes in. And that that is, if you like, the superpower of the geriatrician. So when we think often of as frailty, particularly seeing people maybe with hip fracture or osteoporosis, we maybe focus quite a lot on the musculoskeletal aspect of the thing. The patient has sarcopenia, they're not walking well, they, they've lost weight. But the model you're talking about there includes a lot of other things, hearing impairment, visual impairment, and reserve, you mean loss of reserve, what, in, in cardiac function, renal, renal function, all those things. So it's, it's really very a, a very global global thing, frailty. And that, that's exactly why they need a very holistic approach. So it isn't, it isn't just the broken bone and getting through the operation and, and surviving the pneumonia or whatever made them fall. And, and effectively, that's why it becomes so much more complex because treating the bone health is actually now quite easy. But the falls aspect is so much harder because in terms of the falls being multifactorial, so there isn't a single intervention that one can use. So when we talk about bone health, we are very much now familiar with the concept of pharmacological and non-pharmacological therapies. And actually in those non-pharmacological, you've had experts speakers in the in the in the in the bone up series already talking about diet talking about exercise talking about um, modifiable risk factors but in an older person when you're talking about fool's risk factors we know that there are probably between 300 and 400 different risk factors for falling over and even when you identify them what can you then do about all of those and that's why if you don't put the older patient in the middle of everything we're doing, we go wrong. And we have to really understand. So when we're talking about frailty, 
the benefit of identifying frailty is, well, what can you do about it? What we can do about it is we can intervene and we have that honest conversation and we talk about well, what matters to you. What is it that you want? Is it that you want to be in, in your own home? Or do you accept that you need help and how can we give you that help? And, and, and actually, if you were to get poorly again, would you want to come back into hospital? Or is the priority dignity, the family, so it's very individual and very patient-centered, isn't it? You know, we talk a lot in the podcast about large studies and evidence, you know, reducing fracture risks in populations, but it's it's very it's very N equals one, really, what you do, because uh, you know the, the same answer is not going to apply to to two patients who may look similar on the outside. It's, it's true to say, which I suppose, I mean, the next thought that triggers for me is you mentioned about the, the medicines, the pharmacological treatments we can give people. Is there evidence that the pharmacology works in frail elderly? Because obviously, as you know, when we do these big studies into drugs, often we exclude certain groups of people. So we get nice, clear, easy studies, but those aren't the groups of people you give the medicines to. So so no, it, does, it, does it work? It is absolutely. Yes. So, so um, I remember when I first looked at the Horizon paper and they were, you know, the first paper to include hip fractures and actually show um, this medication had a, a, an amazingly beneficial um, effect for, for, for older hip fracture patients. But actually their, their definition of old is what we as geriatricians are not seeing on our wards at the moment. The average age on my uh, on my ward is in excess of eighty eight. You know, um, and so when we're looking at a study that's including a seventy five year old, and and again it comes back to that appreciation of the medical comorbidity. And so you are absolutely right. That's the key issue. Um, is that frail older people with complex medical comorbidity, with chronic kidney disease, with um, with dementia, with um, chronic lung diseases, they aren't going to be in the trials. So it has to be very much an extrapolation of data. Yet we also know that as we get older, the skeleton is older, the risk factors for falling increase. And actually, when we look at the FRAX models, when we look at the NOG data, we know that the threshold to treat these older patients is much, much lower. Hmm. And I suppose, so how then do you weigh up or can you have that conversation with the patient actually about life expectancy? Because, you know, as, as you know, we, we think of drugs and, and they will prevent fractures over the next three years, five years, 10 years. How do you have that conversation with someone who you think statistically is probably not going to be about that length of time? It, it reminds me just quite recently, I had a lady in the clinic who I'd seen about two years previous when she was 84. She had a fracture. I recommended some medication and she was back in the clinic two years later, aged 86, and she hadn't taken any of it. And she was perfectly mentally clear. And she just said to me, she decided she was too old and she didn't think there was any point in taking any preventative medication. And I must say, I respected her because she was very honest about telling me that. She didn't pretend she'd taken it the way some people do. She didn't pretend she'd side effects. She just told me she thought she was too old. So how do you have the conversation with that sort of patient? And how do you weigh up life expectancy with efficacy of, it is, of drugs? It is, <laughs> it is very challenging. And, um, and effectively, 
that that is one of the the very topical areas for us because we've recently had this call to action paper that's very much recommended intravenous zoledronate as first line treatment for hip fractures, and and I have spoken to some of of the authors because I think it's a fantastic publication, but at the same time. I don't want it to be that it's another tick box for us to do that we just think about treating everybody and we give everybody intravenous zoledronate because that that is an individualized medicine and and I think coming back to the lady that you saw I think as hospital doctors the patients that we see on our wards are the frailest they are the most vulnerable and and at the very outset of my consultant career it was very much said that, you know, the time in hospital wasn't the time to be having these really big conversations about what next, where do we go, if you recover, what you recover to. Um, and that's why the outpatient setting was was almost deemed the preferred place to have the discussion about, right, so you've now survived your hip fracture, um, we now need to think about your bone health. And, and again, with recent data and the whole concept of imminent fracture risk, we know that we have an opportunity to intervene. We've got the ability to give our patients the medications in hospital, but it does then become um, a harder discussion in terms of if somebody is very frail, are they going to be alive a year from now? And, and actually acknowledging that some of the medications, particularly anti-resorptives, are going to take six months at least to have any effect on the skeleton. And if we're talking about a life expectancy less than a year, what is that risk benefit? So it does come down to how well they're doing in hospital. Um, I, you know, I I won't give intravenous zoledronate if the creatinine clearance is less than 30 mils a minute. So sometimes we know that the hit of the operation, um, for example, any complication from the surgery, it may take a little bit of time for an individual to get back to where they were before um, they had the fall and the surgery and the anaesthetic and the blood loss. Um, but in terms of, of the lady you're describing, it, it really is, it is an individual informed decision, but very much adopting that shared decision making. So it, it comes back to what matters. And, and we are very aware of the pain, the disability and the losses associated with fractures. So if we have an individual with multiple risk factors for falling, it is very much saying, why, why, sh- you know, why shouldn't we be treating? Am I going to be surprised if this person falls again in the next year? If the answer is no, why am I not doing anything? And and if I flip that on the on the other side, how many patients do we see every day who've got a diagnosis of osteoporosis and when we look at their medications, they're on nothing other than calcium and vitamin D? So it it isn't simply the fragility of the bone increasing the risk of fracture it's those other things that we need to consider and and if your lady is a fit well lady who's not falling over she's at a much lower risk of falling but if you add a little bit of visual impairment how many of our patients have got macular degeneration cataracts how many of our patients have got hearing aids that they don't wear cognitive impairment dementia is probably the leading cause for people to be falling over not using walking aids all of those sorts of things, it's not readily fixable with a single intervention. How do you work with patients who do have cognitive decline, like Mm. dementia or Alzheimer's? How do you, are you still able to deliver this kind of um, individualised patient care? 
it, it is it is more challenging because essentially with patients with with dementia the fundamental difficulty may be that they will not be able to be as actively involved in the shared decision making process so if they've not got the ability to understand and they they then we then need to very much talk to their advocates and so the nice thing about working in a hospital setting is that quite often when we have such a significant injury as a hip fracture and we're quoting to our families uh, 7 to 10 percent mortality in the first month we're privileged and lucky that the family members will come in and they'll work with us and they will be part of that therapy process they're the continuity of care they're that familiar face that will encourage mum or dad to get up and start working with the therapy teams but we very much know that with with dementia it will impact upon their ability to engage with the therapy teams it will impact upon their ability to learn to use the walking aids um and and actually sadly we we don't always see frail patients with with cognitive decline or dementia returning to where they were beforehand. But it is that honest conversation and and making sure that we then prioritise what matters. And if actually comfort, dignity are the most important things, we can make that happen. Our big question today, and one I guess that a lot of our listeners will have, is frailty an inevitable consequence of ageing or can frailty be prevented? Frailty can be prevented. There, There is a, a wealth of evidence now to show that it isn't a set point in time and a point of no return. Frailty can be reversed and increasingly with um, a very proactive approach to care, we should be recognising pre-frail and trying to turn things around and it comes back to so much of that if somebody wants to improve their health if somebody wants to have not necessarily the longevity of life it's the healthy years of living that's what we all crave for it's not to live to 100 it's to live to 100 well it's to have you know the ability to do what we want to do how we want to do it and it may not be the same for everybody and we've got to recognize that culturally there are differences in how we think about longevity how we think about aging um, the benefits of, of extended families of, of having that support mechanism how you know how patients benefit from being involved with friends the social aspects of of, of healthy aging are, are so powerful um but to prevent it it's hard work like with everything um prevention is far better than cure and sadly, we can't just prevent in later years. We've really got to, to promote the life course model of, of having that strongest, best skeleton, the strongest, best muscle mass, the strongest, healthiest brain in our 20s to 30s, and then looking after it forevermore, even perhaps taking one step back. And, and really, the opposite end of the spectrum from where I practice, thinking about education for everybody. So thinking about maternal health, thinking about healthy pregnancy, thinking about eating well, giving the best sort of gene pool, if you like the non-modifiable risk factors, and then thinking about how to look after those modifiable risk factors, how to reduce the falls, how to, how to reduce the burden of medications by promoting the best cardiovascular, cerebrovascular, 
function and health cure everything wouldn't we <laughs> it, it's interesting isn't it? you mentioned just about sort of society and people's expectations do you do you ever become frustrated almost that some people feel that poor health is inevitable you know some older people have very high expectations and are still very involved with things and are taking care of their health is there an extent to which in some parts of society people just accept almost frailty and, and, and ill health and anticipate it and therefore are less reluctant or sorry more reluctant to sort of follow advice yeah and, and I think it isn't just frail older patients I have to say it's uh, it, it's the it's the sort of things that we we teach um quite often and effectively you know imagine a, a powerpoint presentation and you've got one patient who's got diabetes who's got peripheral neuropathy who's on a cohort of medications because alongside their diabetes they've got hypertension they've got kidney disease and they've got some um uh, for example a heart failure so they're going to be on a whole cohort of medications they're going to be frail they're going to have a lot of hospital visits to the renal specialists the diabetes team um to uh, to the heart failure team and then you've got somebody who is older but in good health, who's the frailer patient? It is actually the younger patient. So, so it's kind of moving away from from that concept of um, numbers and age to to that unique cohort of medical issues that they have to juggle together with the social situation. Um, you know, we you know we have to think about individual patients and in terms of engagement I mean I have to say I will ask my patients do you routinely exercise and the number of times people will look at me as, as if I've uh, you know if I've asked but but you would be you know you'd be amazed at how um how some some people are, are really trying to do the best they can by you know walking every day and again as purists we know that walking isn't simply enough but but those patients who are engaged they will happily be signposted towards the royal osteoporosis society you know fantastic tools that we have in terms of you know strong straight and steady and and the video clips and all these things they want to do everything they can to keep themselves well and and you know when you're having a consultation you know when the patient's switched off when you're saying well actually we need to think about exercise now and their eyes glaze over <laughs> and they're they're uh, they're not wanting to be part of that conversation so it, it is it is important that we give the advice. We give the advice in a way that they can understand. We make sure that they are able to be part of the decision-making process. But at the same time, it is all about education. And that's why, particularly in the hospital setting, when you've got everything there, you've really got this opportunity to try and put everything in place, to try and make sure that we do stop at one fracture and we don't have further fractures. Now, I have that similar experience of seeing patients in their 80s, for example, and they're playing tennis and they're going to the gym and lifting weights. But often I find they're perhaps from higher socioeconomic groups and better educational attainment. And, you know, we talked, Richie mentioned about your presentation at, at the Royal Osteoporosis Society Conference, you know, where inequality and inequity was one of the themes 
and I meet other people and there's just not that expectation. They're in their 80s and they might say to me, you know, I'd love to go to the gym or I'd love to go and, and exercise, but no one in my friendship group, no one in my family would expect someone in their 80s. I wouldn't know where to start going to the gym. And I think that's a shame because people are missing out. You know, they may be eligible to get the same medication, but they're not eligible to participate in all the other lifestyle things that we know are good for people with frailty. No, and and again, the message is coming through, and that's particularly through the community setups and services. Um, we, you know, we are we are using gym prescriptions um and we are trying to get people involved we've got you know forever active as one of our local um sort of groups and 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 there's there is a lot of information um the role of seated exercises and actually you know it's that it's those those you know the the happy hormones that we get from exercise the endorphins and things they really do make people feel better and it's it's a bit of a a break in that vicious cycle of if you if you've not got the energy you don't want to do things once you start doing things there's social aspects of meeting people there are um you know the 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 health benefits without a doubt and 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 essentially if we're thinking about metabolic syndromes with like diabetes and obesity and all these other things we know that simply by losing weight you can very much cure the diabetes so I think it has to be a bigger education program and and you're absolutely right that um that sometimes it is those who are if you like the more worried the better educated they will be empowered to do things and it comes back to health literacy and and making sure that the minimum standard is a good standard for everybody Madhavi. It's really clear from the way that you care for your patients and the way that you talk about your patients that you have a lot of love for them. You clearly put in a lot into your work. How do you manage a work-life balance? Thank you. It's. Uh, um, it, I think I've been very lucky. My um, My philosophy has very much been as with many of us sort of work hard and, 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 and play hard. And so I've, I've got a fantastic family. I, I enjoy my, my uh, treat for myself is, is, is an hour at the gym every day. And I, I have uh, uh, very much enjoyed sort of various sort of hit classes and uh, recently sort of trying to, to do the right things by doing some body pump and various things. So I, I look after myself and I think that gives me the energy to do what I want to do. Um, I, I really have been incredibly lucky with my colleagues at work and um, and and every aspect of of where things have fallen into place. And my my FLS team has has very much sort of joined me on this this adventure of saying, look, actually, we can identify all these people. Our job is to give the education. It isn't just about medications. It's all about empowering people and knowing that that our patients have got someone to turn to and talk to um a wealth of friends um that we've met you know along the way it's you know it's been a really exciting sort of journey to date and certainly so much more that we can do but it is friends family looking after yourself and and actually not losing that that love of what what we want to do in terms of being well it's a lovely answer. Thank you. That's an interesting answer, isn't it? It's a very nice answer. You know, I, I spoke to a junior colleague recently who was talking about how one of your professional duties is to look after your own health, physical and mental. 
And that's not something I would ever have said when I was a junior doctor. Your professional duty was all about what you did with your patients. But actually, we have a duty to look after ourselves as well, don't we? I think it is really important. And particularly, you know, the pressures don't go away. And, um, you know, it sadly, it's a rarity when everything is, when we're all fully staffed and we've got everything there. There's always so much more that we can do. But it's it's been... It's been about chunking things up in 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 small pieces to say these are the goals for you know the first five years, these are the goals for the next five years. And actually very lucky to be now at a stage where one's trying to to branch out a little bit. And and we have very much talked about how so much of what we do is for, if you like, the wider population. But I think I am lucky and, and for me the love of the job is really when I am seeing the patients, it's that clinician at heart. And I, you know, I, I still get a real buzz out of seeing people and, and trying to explain what we're going to do, that hospital journey, how we get them back on their feet, how we get them back home. Um, and the privilege has been, as I said at the very outset, the continuity of care. That's what we've got. And I think that's what's been broken in so many other specialties. It's not often that you'll be the same person that met somebody who's fallen over in the emergency department to saying goodbye to them when they're, you know, when they're leaving the ward to go back home. When I retire, I move into Addenbrooke's. <laughs> Fantastic. Welcome, Richie. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to us today, Madhavi. It's been really interesting. Good luck with your patients. Thank you. Thank it's you. been a real pleasure to talk to you. You didn't mention cricket once. I was sure it was oh. going to come up. But... <laughs> did, you, did you see England are playing in India at the moment? <laughs> I, uh, I did. I was, I was listening to that this morning. So maybe that's for another episode. We'll get you back to talk about the beneficial effects of, of cricket on, uh, on bone health. In the summer, clearly in the summer. <laughs> Thanks very much. Lovely to talk to you. And you, David. Thank you. Bye-bye. David, we covered a lot with Madhavi there. What were your main takeaways, do you think? Yeah, we really did, didn't we? Um, you know, listening to it all, it, it struck me again. The first thing that struck me was just how relatively recently we have had this concept of orthogeriatric medicine and the idea that if a frail elderly person comes into hospital with a, a broken hip, let's say, that we need to think about about them globally rather than just sort of fix the hip and how really only over the last maybe 15, 16 years since since the publication of, of the Blue Book and and other developments around that time, as Madavi mentioned, she was appointed, I think, in 2006 and, and set up the orthogeriatric service in, in Addenbrookes. Uh, I just reflected how relatively recently, you know, we're thinking in this way and and it's great and the idea now that a frail elderly person would break their hip and wouldn't have a comprehensive geriatric assessment before going home again seems seems almost hard to believe but it was people sitting down writing guidelines you know pushing or pushing hard for this people like madavi maybe and uh yeah it, it's, it's good to see the progress we've made in, in that area um it, it struck me again just how complex the area of, of frailty is and of caring for people in general with osteoporosis and hip fractures and older people. We sometimes think sort of day to day at the clinic, maybe of frailty just as 
as, as loss of muscle mass or, or loss of weight or looking older. But, but in fact, she reminded us that frailty is complex. It's, it's loss of overall reserve. It's loss of hearing. It's problems with eyesight. It's problems with mental health. It's very dependent on support that people get from friends and family, what their life outside hospital is like. It's a very complex issue. Um, and while obviously everything can't be sorted out on one visit to hospital, it's really good to hear of the, of the depth and of the, the degree of interest and enthusiasm that people like Madhavi do put into this work so that they, they you know, try to do the best for the patient and look at them holistically. Um, and probably following on from that, again, that this theme of equity keeps coming up, doesn't it? Where, uh, you know, where you, you can prescribe a medicine and hope that everyone will take the medicine. But outside of that, uh, things, uh, things are very very open to people sometimes not getting equal access to care, equal access to care outside of hospitals. Um, people have different levels of support in the community. People have different levels of expectation about their own health. Madhavi described this as health literacy, and that's really important. I know some people in their 70s and 80s will feel motivated to go out and join a gym uh, and make big changes to their diet and their lifestyle. Other people in their 70s and 80s really, they might like to do that, but they just don't have the tools um, to know where to start. Um, and yeah, and it just it, it, it shows us again how, how equity and inequity uh, really cuts through all types of healthcare. Um, and what about what about you, Richie? What did you what did you take out of that? I took quite a lot away from this interview. It's really surprising how much there is to unpack from just 40 minutes of discussion with Madhavi. The first thing I would highlight is how far ahead of the curve Madhavi was in setting up the clinic in Addenbrooke's. The, the clinic started in 2006, didn't it? But the blue book that led to this development of the author geriatrician didn't come out until 2007. Yep, that's right. Um, and when I first started studying osteoporosis in 2011, it, it was a really big deal. You know, the first thing I was told to read was the, was the blue book, but now you don't hear it mentioned so much. And it's interesting to think back to how that book had such an influence on patient care and congratulations to the people who put it together. Yeah. Yeah, I would I mean, agree it, that it's good that it's not mentioned so much, isn't it? Because it's accepted now as part of normal medical care. You don't have to almost make the basic argument again. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It really has become embedded, hasn't it? I would highlight, like you, that um, Madhavi's practice is about equity for people and it's about respect for people who are very ill, maybe towards the end of their life, and for the clinical care teams. Madhavi was talking about going to the gym and looking after herself so she can then provide the best care for her patients, which I thought is very interesting. And that's something that everybody can take away from this interview. I feel we should all be doing that. Another thing I would say is that working as I do at Imperial, which is a very technology-focused university, I spend a lot of time talking to 
clinicians and companies who are developing new technologies for personalized care, new technologies that are going to assess a patient and work out what's wrong with them and new technologies that are going to work out uh, what treatments or management strategies they have. And actually, you know, listening to Manavi today, I realize that's not really personalized medicine at all. The discussions that Madhavi and her colleagues have with the patients to find out what they want and need and the discussions with the families to find out what they want and need, that's personalised medicine, isn't it? It's the personal part of the medicine. I like that Madhavi has taken a really holistic approach and the attention to detail was incredible. You know, deciding to have difficult discussions with patients in an outpatient care setting rather than an inpatient care setting, I can imagine makes a huge amount of difference to that conversation. If you're lying in a hospital bed, you're not really going to be able to take part in that conversation. You're just going to say yes, yes, yes to anything so you can get out of the hospital. Um, I was really excited to hear when you asked Madhavi, you know, if the drugs work in people who are frail and she said, yes, they did. Uh, the downside, obviously, is that Madhavi also said that the falls are harder to treat, which makes me wonder what we as a bone research community might need to tackle next. And I know there's a lot of people who are researching that very carefully. Um, yeah, I suppose the last thing I'd say is, uh, is Madhavi's right. The orthogeriatricians do have superpowers in treating frailty. And I think I think that's really nice. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed that interview. And I think... I think this is one that we are going to refer back to in future episodes. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. There's 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 a lot a lot there. It's complex, and yet, um, Madavi and, and doctors like Madavi they they take the time and they put the the effort in with the individual patients. And things like that don't always turn up on a balance sheet or on a. A sort of profit loss account for the hospital at the end of the year if you want to put it like that whether mm -hmm. you have a difficult discussion with a patient while they're in their pajamas lying in bed feeling that they have very little agency or whether you make the effort to have that conversation when they're wearing their own clothes sitting in a chair in outpatients mm -hmm. perhaps feeling they have a little more independence and agency as I say, that doesn't really show up in anyone's spreadsheet, but it does make a difference to the quality of the care that you give and just to the human experience. And as you say, to the personal care, it's interesting how the term personalized care has become taken over almost by the scientists. And yet it's nice to see that there are still people providing personalized care in the real meaning of the word. And that is you know, tailoring the care to the patient in front of them. And involving the patient in that discussion for how the care should be tailored, not using some piece of technology or a, or a device to take a measurement and make a decision based on that. I don't want you to fall out with all your friends at Imperial saying things like that now, Richie. Oh, dear. <laughs> in, in that case, we better leave it there then. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We certainly did. See you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye now.